And there are so many different types of churches, or what people call church. You have the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Coptic Church, the Wesleyan Church, the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, and it keeps going. Congregational Church, the Amish Church, the Church of the Brethren, or sometimes they take off the Brethren and call themselves whatever. Uh, Japanese Mennonite Brethren, that's a real thing. Methodist, the Salvation Army, you know that's a church? I mean, there are so many different groups that call themselves church, churches. And within those churches, there's smaller splinter groups that come off of those. So you get the free, the reformed, the traditional, the contemporary. Uh, when I was in South Carolina, there was even a cowboy church. There was a biker church. There's, there's chirps, church, chirps. There's churches for every type of person out there, isn't there? But what actually is church? I was reading an article that talked about a church in England and now in some major cities in America. And this is how this particular church describes itself. It says that we have an hour of, of music, an inspirational sermon, a reading, some quiet reflection. That sounds like a good church, doesn't it? Well, actually, that's a church called the Atheist Church. It's a real thing. They say it's a church without God. So is that church? I mean, is church that we, that we sing songs, the place where you sing songs? Is it, is it that you, you gather so that you can you know, reflect and just think about some good thoughts, have some good thoughts? If I were to interview you and have you come up here and say, okay, you are going to define for us this morning, what is church? Pressure's on. What would you say? Well, I think probably the best answer that we can give is to find out what Jesus thinks. If you have a handout, you can see on one side I have some notes. On the other side I have the outline we're going through and some verses. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 16, as you can see on your handout there? What does he say? Who does he say, I should say, is the one who owns the church? Who's the builder of the church? He says, I, speaking of himself, will build my church. And it's unstoppable. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if Jesus is the owner and he's the builder, let's ask him. Look into his word and see what he says. What is church? So what we're going to do is we're actually going to go to Acts chapter 2. We're going to see what, what the Bible says church is. What is church? And what I've done on your sheet here is I've summarized what I believe the Bible teaches from Acts chapter 2, the last 10 verses there, what the Bible teaches what church is. And so if you look at your handout, I'm going to read my summary of what church is, what I believe church is according to the scriptures. And that is church is a community, a local church is a community of Christ disciples who by God's grace are committed to Christ and to each other, that come together to gather into group, and that confess to the world the gospel of Christ. So this tells us here who we are as a church and what we do as a church. Now, as you can remember from last week, we talked about first why we exist. In the top part of your sheet here, you can see the answer to that. 
it's so important for us first, before we really understand some of these other things, to understand why we're even here. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we summarize that idea there that we have church and we exist here to serve one another by God's grace, with God's word, for God's glory. So our vision for this church is that we want to be a church that brings glory to God. And, and how do we do that? Well, we serve people, we serve God, we serve people by God's grace, with God's word, and, and we exist for his glory. And we must never forget that everything we do as a church must be filtered through this idea right here, and that is our primary motivation The reason we do what we do is to bring him glory. And true glory to God comes as we depend upon him. That's why we pray. And as we use his words of grace found in the scriptures to minister grace to each other. You could say it this way. God is most glorified through the church when we minister grace to one another using Two, means of grace, and that is the Holy Spirit's power and the word of God. So we are here, we exist to glorify God as we minister grace. But who is that we? When we say we serve, like who is that we and who we, who's the one another we're serving? And what does that mean to serve? Like what does that look like? So look down in the book of Acts. We're going to start actually in chapter 1, verse 1. And the book of Acts is a historical document written by the Dr. Luke. In fact, if you look in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the first book, this is Luke writing, so he's talking about the first book, that's the Gospel of Luke. He says, I wrote this, O Theophilus, and I have dealt with, in that, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the Gospel of Luke talks about Jesus, what he did while he was on earth with his apostles, And then verse 2 tells us that the book of Acts here is written by Luke to tell us what the Holy Spirit does through his apostles as the church is started by them. Look at verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up, that's Jesus, after he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We're not going to read through the first chapter here, but if you remember what happened... Jesus ascended to heaven. Before he did that, he said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. So they went to the upper room, 120 disciples, and they prayed. And then the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And amazing things happened. If you remember this account in Acts chapter 1 here, they went out and they began to proclaim the word. And they began to be able to speak in other languages. It was, it's amazing. Sometimes people see this in Acts chapter 2 here when this happens, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in Acts 2. And they they look at that and they say, well, there was some kind of angelic uh, language they were speaking. Or they were speaking some kind of gibberish or a language people didn't know. Now, actually, Acts chapter 2 is very clear. They went out and spoke in the heart language of the people that were there. I mean, Jerusalem was filled with people from all over the Roman Empire. And they had different backgrounds, different languages they spoke. It was the Jewish Feast of Weeks. So so imagine this, 120 disciples praying, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Then they kind of go out and they migrate at some point to the temple. And they're there going around telling people about Christ. And as they speak, they're able to speak in the language, the heart language of a person that is not from Jerusalem, but from a person 
in a language from their native area. In fact, I was thinking about this. Like, wouldn't that be pretty amazing if we could go down to downtown L.A.? I was thinking, where, where could you go to find a, a, a sea of different ethnic backgrounds? downtown LA, if you were able to go up to people and give the gospel and you were able to speak to them, not in English, but actually in their heart language, that'd be pretty amazing. That'd be pretty awesome. And that's what's happening here. It's amazing. In fact, it's happening with these 120 disciples. It's, it's happening in such an amazing way. People are th- saying, what is going on? Are these people drunk? This is, this is crazy what's happening. And then Acts chapter two, look at verse 14. The Bible says that Peter stood up before thousands of Jews, so this, was, this would have been in the temple there, and it probably would have been in Solomon's portico. That was, a, that was the place where Christ would come, and he would stand up, and he would teach people. And also we see in the book of Acts, this is where Peter and the apostles are coming to, to teach the, the church. And so this is probably in this area right here, the temple where he stood up and preached. And, and if you want to picture this, if I don't know if you have a picture of the temple in your mind, but you have the temple, and outside of the temple there was there were courtyards, large courtyards, where thousands of people could have gathered. And then there was a portico called Solomon's Portico that was covered. And so Jesus taught from there. And what does Peter do when the Holy Spirit comes upon him? He gets up and he preaches in the exact same place that Christ would have preached or did preach. And then you look down in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. We're not going to read this whole thing, but Peter preaches the gospel. Now, I think that verse 14 to verse 36 is actually just a summary of his message. It's not the whole thing. If you look at verse 40, it says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So here you have a summary message of what Peter preached. And what did he preach? Well, it's very confrontational. These thousands of people listening to him had just weeks previous said, Crucify Jesus and killed him as he died on a cross. And now he stood before them and said, you killed him, and he's the Messiah. God raised him from the dead. And so Peter preached that Jesus was the Old Testament fulfillment of the Messiah whom they killed. And the paradox here is this. You killed the Messiah, and now you need to trust him to save you from your sins. Which the biggest sin they, they committed was what? They killed the Messiah. They killed him. And so look down in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. We're going to read through the end of the chapter here and and listen to what happens within their hearts. This is the conclusion of his message. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, that's the thousands listening to Peter, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, repent, And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their, their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing upon this passage. We cannot understand the truth without the Holy Spirit's illumination. So help us to understand what the church is according to you found in your word. And then God, we want to be the church that you have called us to be. So help us know how can we apply that today? How can we live as your church? Lighthouse Bible Church, the church of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 38 years ago, Lighthouse began under the shepherding care of Pastor Roger. And then a faithful group began called Valley Bible Church. And now today we have Lighthouse Bible Church. When you think about Lighthouse Bible Church, what do you think about? And do you think about a place? Do you think like, I came here to Lighthouse Bible Church? Or do you think about a people? These people are Lighthouse Bible Church. Sometimes we, we wrongly think about the church as a place. You might think of Lighthouse or Valley Bible. You might think of a place on the other side of the interstate. Or you might think of this place. But actually, hopefully you think of the people that were part of the church then. And some of the people that are part of the church now. And all of us who are part of the church. The church are God's gathered people. So sometimes we say to our children, we say, don't run in church. Probably not the best way to teach them what church is. Literally, they're not running over people, right? Like Jesus didn't die for the pews or for the dirt outside. Dirt's worth a lot of money around here, but he didn't die. He died for the people. That's why Ephesians 5, 25 says, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So Jesus loves his people, his gathered people. So who is the church? What are we to do as the church? So again, I summarized here what I believe a biblical view of the church is, and that is we are a community of Christ's disciples who, by God's grace, are, number one, committed to Christ and to each other. They're number two, we come together to gather into group. And number three, we confess to the world the gospel of Christ, the three C's. So there you go. I alliterated again for you guys, because that's what all good pastors are supposed to do, aren't they? I don't know. It's nowhere in the Bible, but sometimes it seems to happen all the time. So we're going to look at the first one here. First, who is the church? Well, we're a community of Christ's disciples that by God's grace, we are committed, first of all, to Christ. So what does it mean that we are committed to Jesus Christ? We'll look down in verse number 32. Peter preached. He said, you killed him, but then God raised him up. Verse 32, he said, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Like we just saw him alive again. We're witnesses of this. This is very recent stuff that's happening here. Peter preached, and what was, what was the heart of his message? Look in verse 21. In the middle of his message, he says, and he quotes the Old Testament passage, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so then th verse 37, they were cut to the heart by 
what he was saying. And they said, what shall we do? What's our response to be? But we realize that this is true. We are sinners. We have rejected God. We killed his Messiah. What shall we do, brothers? I mean, should we be in despair? And what does he say? Well, he says, verse 38. Let me just pause here to say that this is probably one of the best proofs of the resurrection right here. And here you have men who were previously scared or in this upper room. And then they come out and they boldly preach to thousands of people who had just killed the Messiah. And they say, we're witnesses. Like, so here you have historical proof of the resurrection. And they tell everyone, we saw it. Many people here saw it. And it's like, yeah, we saw, we saw Jesus. Okay, wow. So we have historical documentation here. And, and before thousands of people who actually killed the Messiah, they recognized that he actually did rise again. Moving on. That's going to be in two weeks. So not to spoil the party, but that's what Easter is all about there. But verse 38, what are they to do? They're to repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people look at this verse and get confused. Was Peter here preaching a works-based approach to God? No, absolutely not. Salvation is not based upon your repentance or your baptism. In fact, I read for you verse 21 to show you that who are they to call on for salvation? Call on the name of Christ. Call on Jesus. It's not call on yourself. It's not call on your baptism. It's not call on your own works. But you need to cry out to Jesus. So what's, what's Peter talking about here? What's he saying when he says repent? Well, we've talked about this in the past couple of weeks. So you can go back and listen to some of those messages if you want to, I guess. But let me just kind of briefly re- re- refresh your memory. This is the same message that John the Baptist and Jesus preached. And that was to repent or turn and believe the gospel. Repent means to change your direction. So think about it. Thousands of people here, they all yelled out, crucify him. And he's saying, you need to repent from rejecting the Messiah. So turn from rejecting the Messiah and actually believe in him. And so what he was saying here is to repent then is also, he's speaking of turning to Christ. If I was driving down the interstate towards LA and I was on the 118 and I wanted to come back to see me, what do I have to do to come back to see me? I have to repent. That's what he's saying here. He's saying you have to turn around. If you want to come to Christ, you have to stop going the direction you're going. These people were rejecting Jesus and he's saying, stop rejecting him, turn in faith to him. So verse 38, what he's saying here, he's saying, repent and believe. Okay. Even though the word believe is in there, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin and repentance and faith is an inward decision to surrender yourself to jesus christ and place your your faith in his work for you so repent and believe and then he says that you are to be baptized baptism was the outward symbol of the inward reality so they they would have had all these uh places where they could done ritual washing there so 3,000 people get saved. Where do they get baptized? They go down to a river somewhere? Well, no, they have all these places in the temple where you can do this. And so they can just walk in and people just walk in and walk out. Well, why is he saying to get baptized? Like, there's nothing magical that happened in the water when they walked in that water and came out. It wasn't like there was an aura around them or anything. What's he saying here? Like, why is he tying this together? Well, think about it. These people publicly shouted, 
I reject Jesus by saying what? I crucify him. So think about their rejection of Jesus was public. And so what is he saying to do here? Your confession or your repentance needs to be public as well. So when they would have stepped into that water, they would have been telling all the Jewish people around them, you know what? I'm actually a Gentile or at least living like a Gentile. And I want to place my faith in Jesus Christ. So what you see here is the baptism was an outward symbol a public symbol of an inward reality. And so this was super significant for these people right there in the temple as they were listening to him. I mean, he was saying you need to inwardly repent and then outwardly express that to everyone around you. And then he says you will receive the forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 41. So Peter preached, commit your life to Christ in repentance and faith and symbolize that in baptism. Verse 41, so those who received the word, they repented and believed. Then what happened? They were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what is the church? It's a community that by God's grace have committed to Christ. And you can look at your sheet. What does that mean? It means we have personally, so each one of us in here as a part of Lighthouse Bible Church, we have personally repented and believe you might say oh you forgot the d on that no actually we're still believing like it didn't we didn't just believe in the past and we're done with it it's actually a continual thing we repented we turned from our our humanistic carnal way of living and approach to life we've committed and believe in jesus christ as our lord and savior and we picture that union with baptism and when we think about the church here and we think about Lighthouse Bible Church, we invite people to come that don't know Christ. If you're in here today and you've never repented and you're not believing in Jesus, then we, re- we call you to do that. Repent and believe in Jesus. But Lighthouse Bible Church isn't just an evangelistic thing. Like we are actually here as God's people. And we love people that come in that aren't, but it's for the people of God. We've committed our lives to worshiping Jesus. He is our joy and our hope. And he is our everything. So look at verse 38. Verse 38, this is part of his message again. Verse 39, I'm sorry. This is part of his message. And he says, the promise, what's the promise he's talking about? The promise that they're going to have forgiveness of sins. They're going to have the, the Holy Spirit given to them. It's for you and your children and all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And what you see here is this emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. They received the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered Peter to preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures that he was preaching from. The Holy Spirit saved them by his grace. These people that were there that repented and believed. The Holy Spirit then, the progression of this passage is also, you see that the Holy Spirit is the one who is building the church. He's the one that's working. So these amazing things you see here are done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so my my point of saying that is this, is that we are a church that is empowered by the Spirit of God. So, if you're in here, you're not a believer, we invite you to come to Christ. If you're in here and you're a believer and you've never been baptized, we think it's very important for you to publicly tell people that you've come to faith in Christ by being baptized. And so I would invite you, if you've never been baptized, and I'm not talking about when you were a baby sprinkled, I'm talking about after you repented and believed, you decided that I'm going to tell everyone and publicly recognize and picture that I have have. Uh, trusted in Christ, I'm in union with Jesus Christ. And so we invite you to do that. So talk to me afterwards if you want to do that. Talk to one of our elders. So what is the church? Secondly, 
We're committed to each other. So we're committed to Christ and we're committed to each other. What does that mean? If you look at your sheet there, you can see committed to each other means we are a unified membership that serves one another. And we picture that unity with the Lord's table. Now you look at that word membership in there and some of you want to run out of here, don't you? That, that word membership scares people sometimes. You know, they look at that and they, they think, oh no, what, what am I going to be roped into here at this church? I think our modern society uh, has ruined the word membership. Because we think of membership, we think of Costco, right? So last year I got a Costco membership for the first time. Which, what a great place you can go in there and you can buy ketchup for the rest of your life. You know, <laughs> one trip, never need ketchup again. And, but you think about, we pay something and we get something. That's what we think of membership. Or maybe I talked to a couple guys yesterday that bought a membership last year to the gym and they don't go anymore. And so for them, it's rats. I, I went to the, I paid all this money and I didn't get any benefit from it. Well, it's, that's kind of a modern idea of membership. But that's actually not what the word membership means. Uh, let me just talk about the etymology real quick of the word membership. So the word ship means to be in condition or to be related to. The word member means to be a part of a body or part of our group. So you could say this way, the actual original word membership means this, to be related to a group of people. That's simply what it means. We've added all these other things on to it, but that's, it just means to be related to a group of people. And that's kind of what we have as the idea of membership. Membership is not actually about you getting benefits. There are no pools here. We don't have a pool. Now, some of you have pools. So I guess if you're a part of the membership, maybe you get to go to the, someone's house and swim. We have Lake Lighthouse out here. It's about as close as we get to a pool. But we, there's no benefits like that. It's not like some people even think about it this way, not at our church, but in some churches. If I become a member of this church, my kids can get married in that church. So look for a really beautiful church to become a member. <laughs> so my kids, well, that, that's not the idea of membership. It's not like benefits that you're receiving. It's not like you get extra square footage in heaven. But church membership is actually not about what you get for yourself. It's about what you give of yourself. It's not about what you get for yourself. It's about what you give of yourself. And church membership is actually a personal commitment that you make to God and you make to a group of people in the local church. It's more like joining a family than it is joining a membership at Costco. Okay. In fact, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not, but I'm going to say it anyways. (laughs) But this past week, Tegan was officially made a Pardue by the state of California. I didn't get her permission to say that, but that's an exciting thing, isn't it? State of California said, your last name is officially Pardue. So she's a part of that family. Isn't that great? She has been for a long time, but it's official in the books, whatever that means. It's awesome. But you know, joining the church is like joining a family. There's a different commitment you have within a family, right? There's, there's a, a commitment of love and, and of care. In fact, I put on the back of your sheet, you can see, I put three different commitments that you make when you become a member of a church. First of all, you commit your soul to the care of God's shepherds and to God's people. So there's two different groups, God's shepherds and God's people. And I put some verses down there. Honestly, I could preach a whole message on this. Maybe I will someday. But you can look at some of those verses. You, you commit your soul to God's shepherds. In fact, the Bible says as your shepherd and as the elders, we are to watch for your souls. The word says they were to exercise oversight of your soul. So such an important responsibility. I will stand before God someday and how I, how I oversaw the souls of the people he put in charge of my responsibility. 
uh, look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. We, as brothers and sisters in Christ, were in Galatians 5 to walk in the Spirit. And if someone stops walking in the Spirit, you who are spiritual, you who are walking in the Spirit, we're to restore those people to walk in the Spirit as well. And if, in Matthew chapter 18, you can see verse 17. If someone doesn't want to walk in the Spirit anymore, and they actually reject the Lord and start walking a different way, a different direction, we're actually to pursue them, tell it to, as Jesus says, the church, and they refuse, we're actually to put them on the outside. We're supposed to actually excommunicate them and treat them, as it says right there, a Gentile and a tax collector. You can't, think about it this way, you can't be uncommitted to something unless you, if you've never been committed to it. Say that again. You can't be uncommitted to something unless you've committed to it. In other words, you can't have Matthew eighteen seventeen unless you at some point were committed to the church. If I were to say to uh, come up to you after church and say, hey, by the way, you're not going with me to Disney World. Disneyland around here. Sorry. Disneyland. You might be like, oh, I didn't know I was going to Disneyland. It's like, oh, that's right. Yeah, you've never committed. I'm not going to Disneyland, by the way. But if I was going... You know, you'd be like, oh, that's, so in other words, if you never committed to go with me to Disneyland, I can't then say you're not going. That's kind of the idea of here of church membership. Like the reason you become a member is you're committing to your, the shepherds and you're committing to each other. And you have to have that at some point in order to be able to have some accountability for your spiritual growth. And number two, you're also committing to serve God and one another. And then number three, you're committing to your heart to a, a set of core beliefs. And we call that a statement of faith. It's like we're unified around what we believe about Jesus and the word of God. So commitment to each other means we are a unified membership that serves one another. We picture that unity with the Lord's table. You might say, I don't see membership in this passage. You know, where is that at? I, I did a search while you were talking, Pastor Ben, and I didn't find membership in the Bible. Well, you're right. There actually is the word membership is not found in the Bible. But, um, but the idea of membership is, look at verse 41. It says, then those who gladly received the word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. In this verse, and then throughout the New Testament, you, you see the idea of, of church membership. Or you might say it this way, church commitment. In, in Matthew 18, Jesus taught there has to be some kind of commitment that you make to a church spiritually. And then in Acts, you see it modeled here, church commitment, church membership. And then the rest of the New Testament, you see this commitment commanded and taught. So what we see in verse 41 is the idea of commitment to a local church modeled. So after 3,000 people come to Christ, it's, what does it say in verse 41? 3,000 souls were added to them. This word added is a word that's used to describe someone adding up numbers or putting a list together. Like a, like a, a woman would go maybe to the market and she would put a list of what she wanted to take with her or what she wanted to buy with her at, for her at the market. And you see these lists throughout the New Testament. You don't need to do this, but if you want to flip through, you could look at Acts chapter 1, verse 15. There's a list of the 120 disciples in the upper room praying. You see some of their names there. In Acts 2.41 here, we see a list. In fact, you look at verse 47. You can see it says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. It's like they're, they're adding more to their list. And if you look through the New Testament and the rest of the Acts here, you can see more lists. Acts 4.4, 4, you see another list of people, more people coming to Christ. And they have a number of how many people were saved and part of the church at that time. In Acts 6, you see a list of deacons. At least it's my view is that they're deacons. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, there's supposed to be a list of widows that you have in your church. 
So, so you see it modeled in the scripture. You see Jesus taught it. And then I think you see it commanded in many places when you see the words one another. Now, those two English words, one another, are, is actually one Greek word. And that word is used 94 times in the New Testament. And 54 of those are direct commands to commit to other believers within the local church. And and, and think about it this way. Like our salvation is symbolized through baptism. And by the way, if we put the screen up, there is a baptistry back there. Some people don't know that. So it's back there. But like we do that, when, when we are... Uh, living in unity as a church and fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with each other, we symbolize that with the Lord's table. So that's what we did last week. We had the Lord's table. And what we're we're doing in that is we're symbolizing the unity that we have in Christ with each other. And think about it this way. If you're in the Middle East and you sit down with someone, you only sit down for a meal with someone, with someone that you are, are at peace with. And that actually is a symbol that you're living in unity with that person. And so that's what we have when we do the Lord's table. So, so the three things, we're committed to Christ and to each other. And secondly, we come together to gather into a group. Now you're like, oh, Pastor Ben, are you going through this whole thing today? Well, I'm actually going to split this up into two weeks. So right now what I'm going to do, the rest of the time, we're going to talk about gathering together. And then next week we're going to talk about grouping together and then also confessing to the world the gospel of Christ. So our commitment to Christ and to each other means that we will gather to worship Christ and then to edify and to encourage each other. Look at verse 42. Notice what activities the church does when they're saved, baptized, and then added to the church. Verse 42. And they, that's the church, devoted. This word devoted is in perfect tense, which the idea is is they continually devoted themselves. Not just a one-time thing. This was a habit of their of their lives, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So notice these four nouns that describe the regular routine of coming together as a church. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, number one, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. In verse 46, it says, they, day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And what you see in this early church here, and then actually throughout the gospel or the book uh, of Acts here is you see the church gathering together in these large settings in the temple. And then you see them going into smaller groups into each other's homes. So I want to focus first of all, right now on these, these larger gatherings the church had. And first of all, you see in verse 42 that they were devoted to the apostles teaching, or you could literally say this way to the teaching, to the times of teaching. So imagine the church gathering together in the temple there, thousands of people, and they had a time set aside. And at some point in the beginning, it was every day, but eventually became uh, on Sundays when Christ rose again, the Lord's Day gathering. And they would get up and they would actually teach. And the apostles would teach. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could have, and we could listen to what the apostles taught? If we could have all that teaching, wouldn't it be great? Well, it's actually called the rest of the New Testament. Right? Not necessarily everything in there was what they taught, but they are not, I shouldn't say this, not everything they taught is in there. But the idea is, is that what we have in the rest of the New Testament are the apostles' teaching. I tra- traveled to Israel last year and went to the Temple Mount, and it was actually pretty amazing to stand up there and, and consider how big it is. They wouldn't let you really take pictures. Some people did. 
secretly, but you're not really supposed to because it's a mosque up there. But you can look around and you can realize this is, this is really big. And it was one of those things where it was somewhat overwhelming as we stood on the Temple Mount to think, this is where it started. This is pretty cool. And look how big it is up here. When we went down we, uh, to the place where you had the wailing wall and the, everyone was praying there, that was really neat to see these groups of people that were dancing together in circles and they're holding hands and they're singing Jewish songs. They're singing psalms. Little uh, kids' party was taking place and they're doing the same thing. And, and I was just imagining what it would have been like for this church to be celebrating Jesus Christ in the temple there, in the courtyard. Wouldn't that have been pretty cool? And it probably wasn't like how we kind of celebrate the Lord, where we just kind of stand here and sometimes we do a hand like this or whatever. I mean, they were, they were like really excited. They were dancing around. Pretty amazing to think about. And then they, they prayed together. So commitment to Christ means that we gather. And think about it this way. I remember a guy that uh, I used to work with in Wisconsin when I worked for a granite company. And uh, we would be in meetings and we'd be sitting there. And we were always waiting for this guy to show up. You know, he liked to drink night before so it's like you have a meeting in the morning you're waiting there thinking when is this guy going to come or and sometimes he wouldn't show up at all if someone like that a co-worker doesn't show up for a meeting what does that tell you about their commitment to that organization that's not very not very good is it and how much more important is the gathering of god's people and if we're truly committed to christ and to each other we'll want to be together and so what do we gather to do well, I think sometimes we can get the focus on just us. Like we are the church. We're God's gathered people. And, and that's true. That is the church. But the church is to bring glory to Jesus. The church is to worship Jesus. The focus really isn't on us. Jesus is the glory of the church. He, he is the one that, that we are to glorify. Jesus is the beginning. He's the means. He's the source. He's the strength. He's the word. He's the purpose. His, it's his people for him, through him, with him, to him. It's all about him. The church of Jesus Christ is his gathered people that he gathered for himself, to himself, for his glory. So I don't know how many different words you can use to say it's all about Jesus. So that's what the church is actually about. But we gather to worship and learn of him. And therefore, if we do that in our worship settings here, what should we do? We should make sure that whatever we do is saturated with Christ's word, the word of Christ, that is the scriptures, saturate our service. And that's why you can see one of the things that I wrote in here was coming together to gather means we gather together each Sunday morning to worship Christ as we, and notice how much the word is in here. As we preach the word, we read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we see the word at baptism in the Lord's table, and we give to spread the word. So my goal And our goal as elders in this time right here is we want Christ to be glorified. And we believe the best way we can do that, the best way we can serve you and we can serve each other is by having the word of God be a part of everything we do. And so when I preach, my my preaching is desiring that I can present the word in such a way that the scriptures just speak for themselves. You know, you think about, I think I said this last week, but you think about, if I was a great comedian up here, you probably would laugh. You might come back. We might have a place full. But who receives the glory for that? I was talking to someone this past week, and they were talking about strategies for churches and how they can grow. And, you know, some churches go to Disneyland, and they get, and, and they get like, a strategy of how does Disneyland get people to come there. And there's different smells that you can develop in Disneyland. I guess when you walk down the corridors and the, the place at Disneyland, they, they pump out smells so that you, you know, you smell chocolate chip cookies. I don't really know. 
And it's like, what kind of smells can a church have? So people will want to come. And if, if we have a great strategy and if we have great skits up here, and if we're really entertaining to you and that's why you come, who receives the glory for that? So what we want to do is point everyone to Christ. We don't want to be boring. Okay, we want, to, we want to be intentional. We want to be energetic. We want to have a true passion that's found in Christ and a true joy that's found in Christ. But what we want to do is just present the word to you. And so when I preach, I'm trying to present the word, let the word speak for itself, and then, and then shepherd us to apply the word in practical ways by his grace. And so you can see, as I said, some of the lists on there, we, we read the word. That's actually commanded for us in the book of 1 Timothy. That's why we have... Pastor Roger and Norm, the other elders, they, they read the scriptures. It's commanded to read the scriptures in a public setting. We pray the word. It doesn't necessarily mean that we, we take the Bible and just pray, although sometimes we do. But if the idea is that when we pray, we're repenting in a way that's in accordance with God's word. Or requesting things that's in accordance with, with what God wants us to, to pray for. We're, we're claiming the promises found in his word. And then when we sing, we're singing the word. We we. We sing songs that are centered on God, that point to redemption, and that are saturated with the word of Christ. And then last, you can see there that we give to spread the word. So that's why we have boxes in the back. The boxes aren't just to make sure we have a property here. It's so we can support the ministry of the word of God. That's why we have missionaries. We, we give to support the ministry around the world. You say, well, where do you see that at, Pastor Ben? Well, look down at verse 44. And he says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So there you see sacrificial giving. Now, some people read this and they say, oh, there's, there's socialism or there's communism. You know, it's the idea we should pool our resources and we should just, you know, give it out to people. Let me first of all say what this verse doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that, okay? Giving here was not forced. So it wasn't, there was no coercion, no gun was put to your head saying you have to give your possessions, which is really the idea of, if you have communism, definitely socialism, maybe to a milder form, probably go to jail if you don't give. But, but the idea there is that this, this, is, not a, this is not a form of, of socialism or, or communism. There's no uh, governing body they were giving it to. They are actually giving it to the local church there in Jerusalem. They would take their... Their, their proceeds of things that they sold, and they would take the money and they give it to the apostles before the church and set it before the church. And then the apostles would decide what the best place, how to distribute that, those, those funds out. And then the deacons would come and they would be the ones, the hands and feet that would do that and take care of the needs of the church. In fact, if you look at verse 44, you can see here that they were giving to those who had need. And the idea of having all things in common means that each individual chose to take something they possess wasn't everything because they did this throughout the book of acts so if it happened all this time then they were done right but they was the idea is they took some of the possessions that god had given them and they pooled their resources together as a church to further the mission of the church and you say well what do they give to like what does it mean they all that had need well there are a variety of needs within the church there's probably two i could say this way two main needs a church has Number one are physical needs. Number two are spiritual needs. And so we know there were widows in the church. Uh, there were people who, who became Christians. And some were thrown into jail. Well, what happens to your family if the main person who's working is thrown into jail? Well, you're, you're obviously, all of a sudden, you're impoverished. I read, in, if you read in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says the word of God increased. And 
many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So if you're working as a priest in the temple and you proclaim Christ by being baptized, and so everyone knows, Christian, what happens to your job? So there are many people that were actually, because they chose the way of Christ, they actually were choosing the way of poverty. So the church was coming together to help these people. And in fact, at some point, Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem experienced um, a famine. And so the church of Antioch helped them out. And also there were spiritual needs. They supported pastors and they supported missionaries to spread the gospel. So the pattern of the church was that the church sacrificially gave to support the church and the, the needs within the church. So coming together means that we gather together and we worship Jesus as we center on the word. So we're not going to go through the rest of this here. We'll pick up the rest of it next week. But I want us to think about what we've just talked about. There's two major points I want to leave with us today. Two major, I should say, questions I have for us. Number one is, is how does your view of the church match up with God's view of the church? You know, when I asked the question at the very beginning, if I were to have you come up here and say, hey, this is, you know, give us the definition for church. What, 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 did, you, what did you have in mind before you came in here? And, 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 and as you understand God's definition of the church, you know, what, what did you, how do you see that, the biblical idea of church? What we talked about today is God's big idea. Like the church is God's idea. So whatever ideas we have, we need to kind of throw them out and say, what does God say? So let me encourage you to take this sheet home with you. Talk about it with your family. Maybe read through it a couple of times. Maybe go to the passage and study it a little bit. Definitely come back next week and hear the rest of it. But the idea is, is have this be our idea of what is church? And the second question, are you a part of this? Are you a part of this? And I don't mean, do you attend here on Sundays? I mean, are you committed? I mean, you can see the word commitment, commitment to Christ, commitment to each other. Are you committed? Are you, first of all, committed to Christ? Like, have you repented and believed in him? And then secondly, are you committed to each other? I mean, are you a part of a unified membership that says, I want to put myself under the, the care of, a, of shepherds, and I want to put myself under the care of other people? And do you regularly show that commitment with gathering with God's people? Now, you might have some questions. You might listen to this and go, oh, I got a lot of questions for you. You know what? I would love to meet you. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love meeting with people. So if you want to come by this week and meet with me, maybe give me a call ahead of time. That way I know you're coming. But if you want to meet with me this week, I would love to meet with you, talk about any of these things. I believe it's biblical. I believe what's God, what God has called us to do. And actually, the truth is, my prayer for you is that you would not only understand this, but then you would commit to this, each one of us in this room. Let me first, before you talk to me or one of the elders, let me encourage you to pray. Ask God. God, show me the truth. And God, help me to be committed to you and to your people. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me as we look to the Lord in prayer? If you are without Christ today, you can call upon him right now. And if you need to commit your, your life to Christ anew or commit to this church, you can do that in your heart right now to the Lord too. I'm just going to give you a few minutes as the instruments play to talk to the Lord and renew the, the commitment that you have as a church to the Lord and to each other.
Father, it's so important for us to remember why we're here. Life, church, it's all about you. We come, we exist to serve one another by grace, with your word, for your glory. And I pray as a church that we will renew our commitment to you and to each other. I pray our church will will be committed as a unified membership to serve each other. And I pray we'll be committed to gathering and to growing. We want as a church to be like Christ. We want individually in our lives and in our marriages and with our children and every aspect of our life, we want to be like Christ. We want to grow. And then we'll talk about this next week, but Lord, we want to tell the message of Christ. We don't want to be a normal, just a secular church that's frankly across the United States. We want to be a spirit-empowered, word-centered, God-glorifying church. God, only you can make us into that as we surrender our hearts to you. Would you do that for us in your mercy, by your grace, for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.